welcome to Reflections on Interpretation, talking story with guides and interpreters. I am Tim Merriman, your host, coming to you from the Big Island of Hawaii. And today, my guest is Jay Miller. Jay worked with Arkansas State Parks for some 37 or 38 years, and he was the chief of interpretation most of those years. He's an old friend, and it's great to see you again, Jay. Well, it's been a few years, Jay, since we got to chat, and I know you've been busy. Uh, we we both theoretically retired, and I say theoretically because that's not really what happens. You just change jobs to something <laughs> that you choose to do. Uh, doing well. I've, I've been enjoying retirement, and as you said, uh, for some reason, somehow, I've been staying pretty busy. Well, I see you a lot on uh, Facebook and social media, and I, I always, it looks like you're traveling a bit and getting to stay involved in the profession in a variety of ways, and we'll get into that. But I, I want to back up. For all the years we've known each other, I don't think I knew where you grew up or where you went to school early on. Oh, that was a long time ago, but I did grow up, maybe. <laughs> maybe. That could be debatable. Um, but I grew up in a, a moderate-sized town in south-central Arkansas called Pine Bluff. And it was a town of about 43,000 or 50,000 people. Uh, and it tells you right away, Arkansas is a small place because it was the second largest town in the state at that, that time. Um, so it was a great place to grow up, great place to, to be a kid in the country and have horses and go hunting and fishing and, and be outside a lot. And, and it, it was just really good. Uh, I ended up going to college at Washita University, and uh, I was one of those kids that didn't know exactly what they wanted to do. I had enjoyed music in high school, and so I majored in music and ended up uh, for six years teaching public school music, being a choral director, and that was lots of fun, and uh, going to concerts and putting on concerts and traveling and touring and uh, entering some competitions and those kinds of things uh, I, keeps you awake. Uh, I taught fifth grade through 12th grade. Uh, and so that, that was interesting. But I decided I wanted something more. So I went to Utah State University uh, to become a forest ranger. I thought I knew what that was, but yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure I did. But I got there and got, in, got into the program, got accepted into the program, and met some wonderful professors. And after conversations, we decided I needed to major in forest recreation and interpretation. And so that's what I did. And that that's my beginning in the field of interpretation. You know, people come into this field from all sorts of odd backgrounds and they kind of discover it and their eyes pop open. And they say, wow, this is something. Well, I was kind of in that position. It's interesting to me. Uh, two weeks ago, I was speaking with Karen Hostetter, who I know you know well, and another trainer in our field. And she started in music. And, oh, is that right? I didn't know yeah, that. And I had no idea. So I, I didn't know that about your background. I knew you had sang with choral groups. Uh, That's but, right. Yeah, I was doing that until just a couple of years ago, and I retired from that, but that was wonderful. Well, that's great. Well, music's a big, been a big part of my life just as a amateur picker and grinner, and probably better at grinning than picking. But uh, <laughs> So when you had a very long career, I said – in the introduction, 37, th almost 38 years. When did that start or why did that start? I was at Utah State University. I was in the grand American West and I had no intention of leaving once I was there. I mean, 
that's how, how marvelous it was out there. But I was ready to graduate. My dad called and said, there's a job open with Arkansas State Parks. I want you to apply for it. And I said, well, I will, but I'm not going to take it. So I did, and I got it. And it was a park planner job, and it was a, a joint job as park planner and state trails coordinator. So I ended up taking that job, and that started my career with Arkansas State Parks. And then uh, in 1984, that was in 76. And in 84, the position of uh, chief of interpretation opened up. And I said, that's really where I want to be. And I applied for that and got that. And I didn't realize you had started off in, a, in an administrative role with state. It Park. was an interesting start. But uh, at that time, a master's degree meant a lot. Um, and uh, it still means a lot. But but people expect more sometimes now. But a master's degree meant a lot. And I was able to move right into that into that position. And uh, the trail work was wonderful. And working with, with various parks around the state was wonderful. Um, I learned a lot and enjoyed it. Yeah, you know, I started out in Illinois State Parks, but I was a site-based interpreter. And uh, they gave me a regional responsibility to supervise seasonal staff, but I never really felt like I was in a coordinator role. It was a, a almost entirely site-based. Uh, I always identified with you when you told your various stories about uh, working with Illinois State Park. That, that always resonated well with me. Well, it was the best of <laughs> times and the worst of times. I I think for me, I realized I couldn't stay with a state system because uh, politics in Illinois is so fierce and the direction things go changes so dramatically with the changes in a director of state parks. Mm -hmm. And I, I stayed eight years. And when it changed directors, I, I realized I was not going to last that uh, he was going to take his places. I didn't want to go and I needed to get off and, and the nonprofit world ended up being right for me. Why was Arkansas state parks right for you for 37 years? Cause that's a long time. It is a long time. And, and you hit on it right there. We were at a perfect time when uh, they had hired a new state park director, and his name was Richard Davies. And Richard Davies' grandfather was an engineer for the Civilian Conservation Corps at Pettigene State Park. And Richard had this affinity with state parks, and he understood state parks, and he understood interpretation. And he was a wonderful leader, and he understood politics. But as the governorship changed, they left him in the park's position until that time in 76, 75, perhaps, when he was hired as park director. Until he retired, he was either director of state parks or the director over that as director of parks and tourism. Um, and so the longevity of his enlightened leadership was right there throughout my career. And I mentioned uh, about some of the things I was able to do things I was able to do, like even consistently attending and sending people to NAI was because Richard Davies said, yes, I understand the value of training. I understand the value of this. And we will send people to that organization year after year after year. That enabled everything. I can see why. I, I mean, part of what I dealt with was when the governor position would turn over, and especially at the change party, 
they would simply get rid of everybody at administration and yep. you get all new administrators and uh, golly, the, the new director we inherited after my eight years there, his main interest was hunting quail from horseback. So all of our capital funds suddenly went to building equestrian uh, quarters at state parks and attached dog kennels for people who hunted quail from and I, I, I very, just very interesting. Wow. I just could not understand how uh, the, you know, kind of the focus could be so flipped, but getting to keep an administrator for that many for decades and consistency and someone who supports professionalism, that's a big deal. It is. It, 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 it was a time period started out in the time period when the park system had no money at all. Um, and at one time, you know, you're taking the better boards off the back of the building and putting them on the front of the building so it'll look better for the guests to see. Sure. And we were in that kind of situation. But Richard Davies' influence and savvy was sufficient that uh, we had a parks committee of legislators, of course, to oversee parks, that kind of thing. Instead of them meeting at the Capitol, he had the meeting at state parks. And they would sleep in the cabins in state parks. They would eat in the restaurants in state parks. They'd see the condition of the state parks. And that made a huge difference. They weren't just talking about them. They were experiencing them. And then in 1996, they voted to put on the ballot a referendum to give a one-eighth cent conservation tax to conservation agencies, which included state parks. And the people of Arkansas passed that as an addition to the to the Constitution. So that's a constitutional amendment. That's amazing. Uh, that forever we get roughly, I don't know what it is now, but the first year that happened, state parks received $25 million. That happened in 96. I came on in 76. That was more money than we had received in all the years combined wow. while I'd been there in one year. And that keeps coming in year after year after year. And so when you look at Arkansas State Parks today, you see first class facilities, you see wonderful nature centers, you see million dollar exhibits. Uh, it's it, it's it's amazing. But that goes back to Richard Davies' savviness and ability to understand the politics and make the politics work for him. That's, you know, that's an interesting story to me, because uh, one of the things that we've often talked about in training is you don't just interpret to the audience that comes to your park zoo museum nature center aquarium you interpret up the food chain to the people that control the budgets and then administer policy if you're smart and uh i guess the parallel story i have is i as you know i lived in colorado 30 years and colorado its big boon was along came the Colorado lottery. That fund was supposedly dedicated to outdoor recreation and uh, facilities related to that. But they had a clause in there that said, and other projects the state legislature will assign. And after, uh -huh. after a few years, state legislature was spending all of the money on prisons. And in Colorado, the citizens put it back on a ballot that those lottery funds had to be dedicated to outdoor recreation in state parks. And that's, that's good. Yeah. And like Arkansas citizens passed that and suddenly state parks went from 
poor cousins that got very little to getting a share of the resources that really made it shine as a, as a program throughout the state. So uh, that's cool to know. Um, when did you get involved in NAI? In that, or was it even NAI then? Did you get involved in either of the parent associations? Yeah, I was I was active in uh, Association of Interpretive Naturalists here in the eastern part of the United States for some years. Uh, and then I was present there at the at the conference in St. Louis uh, when the two merged and have been a, certainly a, a member ever since. Um, and we had, like I said, we had good support, able to send people, able to pretty consistently go to the national and regional conferences, um, uh, able to have state park people on the board and various committees and be, be pretty active. And that paid off well for us. Yeah, I think we were continually impressed with the quality of commitment from Arkansas State Parks. And uh, I know Lisa lived in the same region for many years and mm -hmm. uh, met a lot of your folks through the regional conferences because that's a really active region. And, it is. It still is, yes. Yeah. And, uh, and we were particularly impressed when you invited us once to speak to to managers at one of their meetings. And we, we were just not seeing that a lot around the United States that uh, park managers actually talked about interpretation in a larger forum. I remember that, that time at Mount Magazine very clearly. But afterwards, some of the park superintendents, sometimes are hard nut to crack, came up to Richard Davies and told him, and he later he told me, that this was one of the best best workshop sessions that they had ever been to with your presentation and Lisa's. So, oh, so that still resonates. Have you ever seen an interpreter rise to director of a department? <laughs> I have now. That's a setup, <laughs> as you know. Yeah, I remember real clearly hiring a, a young kid out of out of college before he finished college. It's junior year, perhaps. And put him in a little park as a seasonal interpreter down at Millwood State Park in South Arkansas. And uh, he stayed with us and was an interpreter for many years. Uh, today, he's the state park director. No, he's not. He's above that. He's the director. Now, they've changed the terms now, new governor. He's the secretary of the Department of Parks, Heritage, and Tourism. So the department has merged, it's gotten larger, and he's overseeing all of that. Really active in NAI, and uh, and he was vice president of NAI, and uh, he he looks back on that as great training for what he's doing now. Yeah, Shay Lewis is co-author with Paul Caputo and Lisa Brochu, my wife and training partner, of a book on non-personal interpretation on interpretive media. And uh, I I'm just really aware that I've heard so many times from interpreters, oh, I like being on the front line so much, I'll never take an administrative job. And I always uh, feel a little pang of concern when they say that because I, I've i watched bulldozer operators and people that mow the lawn all day rise to be superintendents of parks and higher positions and they take that maintenance orientation with them. I, I want someone who thinks about the visitor experience. And that's so true. Um, 
in the Arkansas system, which of course is the one I know know best, uh, there are in, interpreters who came through a CIG training, came through our workshops, were with, with us for several years, and they've moved up to assistant superintendent, superintendent positions all across the system. And I think that brings a, a valuable mindset to how you approach visitors and how you approach the services that you offer and how you create your park experience. Yeah, I've said too often we are the icing on the cake. And when times get tough, the icing is left off. And we should be part of the cake. We we are part of park management if we bother to figure out what that means. So that's right. And that's an important part. That's right. I'm really aware that you took the uh, certified interpretive trainer guide training course with us many years ago. Do you remember the year? I think my certificate, my original certificate says 2006, but I'm not sure. And then we came back and, and took a wonderful course with you again as a refresher out at Yosemite. Oh yeah, and that was a that was that was a wonderful time. So Kelly Farrell and I sat in on that class. Well, it's been amazing to see not only what you accomplished in that role, and then to watch Kelly move into that uh, behind you, and and know that there's a level of consistency in your state park system in interpretation that I've not seen anywhere else in the nation. Well, they're, they're, we've been very lucky that way, uh, hiring hiring good people, training good people, having them desire to to move up and, and to accept the responsibility, and then do wonderful work. I mean, that's that's a joy. That that's wonderful, and of course, Kelly is one of the best. Yes, she is. Uh, she is an amazing interpreter. I mean, but I'm aware that yes, I've just said that I'd like to see them move up into to the role of administrator, but I'm aware that the field lost somebody out doing the job that was extraordinary. And we got to see that up close because you and Kelly went to Korea with us. That's right. And uh, uh, what, a, what a wonderful trip that was. I really appreciate being invited to go on, on that. Uh, and Kelly, Kelly really shone during that time. Everywhere we went, she did a presentation, did a wonderful, wonderful job. Uh, people looked to her for for leadership and example, and and we had a great team uh, while we were there, and it was just a really wonderful experience. Just for the sake of people who wouldn't know why this occurred, uh, many, many years earlier, a young man was finishing his PhD at Ohio State University named Kaijun Cho. And he was from Korea, South Korea. And uh, I remember Kaijun coming up to me at a national conference and saying, well, I th thanks for the scholarship that got me to this event. This has been great. And I, I had no idea that I would see him again ever because uh, he was a student and, and a, a student from another country, a distant country. And then he calls me one day and says, uh, I have support for bringing up to 20 professionals from around the world in interpretation to Korea to tour the country and to speak at various venues and share what you know with us. Can you get those people together for us in the next six weeks? And I went, <laughs> oh my God. You know, that that's really a six-month task, not a six-week task. He says, I know, but my funding will go away if we don't do this right now. I just got approval. <laughs> so uh, that's what we did. And fortunately, there were people like you 
uh, who was were capable of allowing yourselves to take some time and go do that. And it was an exceptional group. It was an amazing group. And gosh, I'm trying to think now. We had somebody from Canada, from Panama. Um, Mexico. Mexico. Yeah, Maria. And, and, and uh, from from England. Oh, yeah. Uh, from Wales. Yeah, from Wales. Yeah. Um, it was It was a good international group. Yeah, and they put us in such an extraordinary situation because we rode around the country on this luxury bus and maybe went out and drank beer at night and sang karaoke, which is a fine Korean tradition. But in daytime, he would he would say uh, on the bus, well, at 10 o'clock, Jay, you're going to be speaking about uh, interpretive management to a community group, and, <laughs> and you'd have a couple hours to put together a presentation. And we never knew exactly where we were going. We kind of had a rough itinerary. We're kind of we're going this direction. Yeah, exactly. But then he would pull something on us, and we'd say, "Okay, everybody, smile. Here we go." Yeah. Well, I look back at the pictures, and I smile because uh, the photos of us in a group standing in front of something and getting our, our picture taken just takes me back to the actual experience, which w was amazing because I think we learned a lot about Korea and about the people there. And Kaijun Cho has risen to be the head of his department and has really done amazing yeah. there. And, it, and and the people there were so wonderful everywhere we went. Um, yep. It was just a really, really fine experience. Uh, was just the beginning of you doing a lot of international work. You did. You've been a couple of places I've not been. Uh, where where have you done additional international training? Well, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say I've done a lot. Um, I'm, and I'm always open to do more. Uh, but I had a wonderful, strange opportunity uh, to go to Madagascar. Um, to Madagascar director of the park system was touring the United States. Now we didn't know it at the time, but he was looking for somebody to partner with to help him develop his parks. And he came through Arkansas and he saw our parks. And about a week later, he wrote and said, we'd like to partner with Arkansas. Is there anybody who you could send over? And everybody sort of said, I'm not going to Madagascar. And I said, I will. Yeah. So I ended up spending six weeks in Madagascar consulting and working with their national park staff. And it was a, another outstanding, wonderful experience with dedicated people working so hard with such limited resources, um, trying to provide something to trying to pervert, preserve lands and provide experiences, uh, mainly targeted at tourists because it's it, it, it apparently is an easy trip for people from Southern Europe and, and China, and they get a lot of a lot of tourists. So they, they wanted to cater to that. But they also wanted to provide something for their local people. Anyway, it, it, wonderful resources. It was a marvelous experience. And things build upon things. So because of that, about a year and a half later, I got a call from the U.S. Forest Service. Uh, and they had a partnership. Of course, Forest Service has partnerships all over the country. They had a partnership with uh, with with Bolivia. And there was one particular site, an eco, eco lodge and park, uh, that wanted help with uh, interpretation and exhibits. And they wanted, they knew I'd been overseas. They wanted to know if I would join them in that. And of course I said, yeah. So we spent a couple of weeks in, uh, in Southwestern and Western Bolivia 
uh, flying from community to community, having a chance to look at the nation's dedication and work at restoring accurately original sites from the 1600s of Jesuit missionaries. And the churches, the, the wooden churches and the structures were just magnificent. And that was a thrill. But uh, I was there to study the Juan Chaca Plateau and the uh, the Eco Lodge that was right there on 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 the river on the with the border with Brazil, and across the river there's Brazil, and I I learned that the reason that the government was particularly interested in this place not just as an eco lodge, but as an outpost for the government, they were really concerned that they wanted to see the Bolivian flag flying on that territory so the people in Brazil would be sure to know this was Bolivia and not Brazil. This was where, this was not a place to invade or to settle. This was Bolivia. And so that was an interesting sidebar. I have to say it must be a tribute to you and the others who have worked in Bolivia, but I, I read the analytics on my uh, podcast and who listens in and Bolivia has more listeners in it than most of the European nations. Uh, so really, yeah. And I, I'm always kind of shocked to look there and it goes 16 downloads from Bolivia. And I go, my goodness, I had no idea. Well, if, if they're listening, I'd love to go back and do some more work in Bolivia. Yeah. What a beautiful country. Nice people. Lisa and I have worked a lot in recent years in Rwanda. And what you said echoes for me. Uh, and Pete Devine, who I just had as a guest on the podcast, had worked in sister parks to Yosemite National Park in China. And he said, you know, I'm just astonished that the people I meet there that are park rangers and interpreters and guides like the ones I know in the United States are dedicated professionals who are often working with inadequate amounts of money. And Absolutely. Yeah, they're, they're working so hard. Yeah. And we see that in Rwanda and it's, it's inspirational and uh, and we keep meeting professionals that are, we can look back in our own system at a time when we didn't have the resources and they're dealing with that. And, and we get to share thoughts about how, how you do cope with not getting the support that you need to really do a great job. That's right. And there are so many other threats that we don't even, even think about. Yeah. Uh, in Madagascar, one of their biggest threats was, uh, people from the local community, which people who who live on something like two dollars a year, they live off the forest, and they're going into the forest, which is the protected area. They're going into the protected area to hunt. They're going into the protected area to gather wood, to make charcoal, to build their fires, uh, and and the loss of the uh, of the habitat, the loss of the forest. Uh, is is not so much because somebody's putting in a huge housing development and they're stripping it away, but it's because of all these little little folks that are are desperate just to live. And how do you how do you balance that? How do you tell them no? You can't have a fire to cook your food. How, that is a that's tough. We watched a young uh, park ranger guide interpreter in uh, Rwanda who organized a beekeepers cooperative in his park and the whole reason was that the uh, bee uh, the honey harvesters in the local communities tended to set a bee tree on fire and uh, use smoke to drive <laughs> bees out and then gather the honey 
And he said, we, we just figured out that we had to give them a more productive way to, to make honey and have honey to sell and, and share in their community. And by doing it, we were preventing fires in a, this unique national park. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm aware that you were president of NAI, I want to say four years. Is that correct? Six years. Six years. Okay. Two, three years. Two terms. Two terms of three years each. I may have learned that I wasn't supposed to do that. Why is that? I'm the only president to serve two terms. I don't know. Well, I think it's I think it's a tribute to you having done a good job the first time, so they they wanted you back. Well, maybe so. We can think of it that way. But uh, you know, the the president job is is uh, sort of an honorary thing, and everything wasn't sunshine and roses. But the president's job is more like a a, a traffic cop, and and you're sort of. Uh, taking up issues and directing issues and assigning committees and, and, and things. And the real work is done by the board members themselves. And we're very lucky uh, during my tenure, and I think all the time within AI, to have intelligent, thoughtful people, once again, dedicated people who are giving up their time and bringing their knowledge and expertise to the board. And, uh, and they make all the difference. The, the director uh, is is simply sort of waving his arms and saying, go this direction. And uh, those other folks are, are driving the car. But but we got a lot of things done and it was a very wonderful, wonderful time. Yeah, I, you know, I was president of uh, Association of Interpretive Naturalists and met with uh, Alan Kaplan, president of Western Interpreters, to start the process, the ball rolling with creating NAI from those two organizations. And that was all based on a market study done by Lisa Brochu, uh, showing that our members really wanted to be one larger organization. They saw themselves as being similar. So it's great that we've had that continuity of people that are willing to serve in these roles. And that uh, that's right. And it gives you a broad platform to understand what's going on nationwide because you you do travel and you attend all those national conferences in a role that allows you to see a bit more what's going on. And it's a different perspective. Um, attended lots of conferences as an attendee and they're hurried, but they're relaxed and you're going to the co- the sessions you want to go to. You're listening to the speakers you want to hear. Uh, you're meeting up with friends and, and they're a wonderful, wonderful time for all of that. But when you're the president of the organization, you don't get to do all of that. Yeah, no. <laughs> you have assignments and you have places to be and you have people to introduce. And and uh, it's a it's a different conference when you're at the top rung. Uh, but you do see it from a different perspective. Uh, uh, at my first board meeting, we were in a meeting with the region in Deadwood, Colorado. And at that meeting, I said, I want to do, do a couple of things during my presidency. I want us to strengthen our support for the regions and sections, the communities of NAI. And I want us to put a lot more emphasis on issues of conscience and controversy. I want us to not get away from normal, if you can say that, interpretation of birds and bees and bunnies and flowers and all of those things. But there's more to interpretation and we need in our national conferences to be introducing bigger issues and deeper issues and over time, we've seen that that happen. We, we've seen uh, a lot more 
emphasis in diversity, equity, and inclusion. Uh, and that has become just a normal part of who NAI is. It's not an exception. Uh, our last strategic plan said it that way. It said diversity, equity, and inclusion, the whole Jedi string will become a normal part of who we are and what we do. And we could see that at this last conference in, in Little Rock, Arkansas. Uh, our, our keynote speaker, Minnie Jean Brown, uh, one of the Little Rock Nine, gave a wonderful presentation. And there she was on stage with us. Uh, uh, and sessions throughout the workshop dealt with diversity, equity, and inclusion, uh, how to strengthen your program, how to bring equity to your program, how to expand your audience, how to seek out difficult stories. Where are they? Are you asking the right questions? Are you asking what stories are missing, what people are missing from, from the stories that I'm telling? Um, so I'm, I'm pleased to see that that we've progressed a long way in, in that. Uh, and there's there's more to go. But uh, our new president uh, is is pushing that. And we're going to see a lot of good work come out of NAI in that direction. So so that's been something I'm, I'm really pleased with. I have to say, when I teach the CIG course uh, virtually, which I do occasionally, I often suggest to people that in the poetry model of purpose, purposeful, organized, enjoyable, uh, thematic, relevant, and you, I, I like to think of the enjoyable as uh, E for engaging and make the point that so many of the stories we should be interpreting are darker stories. They're not they're not it's not so much that it's enjoyable to hear about what enslaved people went through or uh what it's been like to break the color barrier and in, in getting to go to high schools colleges or or, or whatever that as an african american or an asian american but uh, people don't necessarily expect to be entertained they want to be engaged they want to understand some of these more complicated situations and uh that's right i, I was doing a working uh on an interpretive plan uh for appomattox courthouse and long-range interpretive plan and as part of that i contacted the virginia tourism office and and they had done some amazing uh research into what tourists are looking for and of course tourists to virginia uh talk about a place with so much history so many historic sites so all eras are represented right there and they very specifically ask what what do you want the people said we want accuracy we want to know the complete story we want to go away with questions to ask we want to go away with some questions answered uh, we want to understand the full story of these sites just as you're saying the people are wanting to hear the whole story not just the part we are accustomed to telling yeah we um We've been to Amsterdam a couple times and did some training in, in the Netherlands. And I was really aware in Amsterdam that I enjoyed going to the Rijksmuseum and the uh, Van Gogh uh, Museum, but that the uh, visit to Anne Frank House was the one that was the most touching, that was the most uh, uh, an experience that I kind of relive every time I think about someone who as a child is trapped into a war trapped into a, a mistreatment of extraordinary means and of course we're seeing that in the news every night as we watch hopefully we keep telling these as you say telling these stories authentically and represent multiple perspectives about 
why these things occur. And maybe someday we even actually help prevent some of them. You have in semi-retirement have stayed a consultant and done a lot of training and, and work. What the name of your business is? It's Interpretive Communications. Okay. Why did you select that name? Uh, I've, I've wondered about that myself. Okay. Uh, I, I remember um, being in Madagascar uh, and on the telephone uh, with my wife. And for some reason, we were talking about taxes or something. And, and we, were, we were sort of saying, well, should we, what should we call our company? What should we call this, this thing? And we ended up saying, well, interpretive communication sounds truthful anyway. It sounds okay. So we just, we just did that. And I remember that experience, that, that phone call, but all the thought behind it I've lost. But anyway, that's just been the name since, uh, since, since at least 95. Uh, but I really started this business back in 88. Oh, yeah. Um, but it really became a formal business there in about 95. And it's just a word of mouth thing. Uh, and now I'm at the, at the point where occasionally I get calls or uh, 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 an email, and someone says, uh, we're thinking about CIG. Can you come teach that for us? I've got one coming up uh, in upstate New York, at Messina, New York, uh, next month in February. Uh, and Amy just sort of called me out of the blue and said, I took this course. I'd like to teach it to my staff up here. Will you come teach it for us? And I said, do I get to travel? Yes. Okay, I will. That's usually my only criteria. If I get to travel, I'm happy to do it. Would have to say that we enjoyed traveling 50 states. Uh, we've also traveled 27 or 28 countries now. Uh, uh -huh. This kind of work. And, um, throughout all of it, a lot of it is just meeting people that you can't, you can't begin to describe the relationships that develop when you get to know people in a training setting, especially if they have a challenge that you've not dealt with and you're learning about what they're trying to work with, but you're trying to help them increase their capacity to deal with it through what they do. That's right. What have been some of the more exciting jobs as a consultant you had, things that kind of enduring interest for you? Of course, CIG, I've taught CIG for many, many years in many, many situations and circumstances, and I always enjoy it. I think it's such a good workshop. Lisa and you did a great job putting that together. And it, it's only changed slightly since that you both did that. And uh, and I thank you so much for that, because it's just a great foundation piece uh, for everybody. I've had people who are brand new say, oh, my goodness, now I know what I'm supposed to do. I've had people who've been in the field for 20 years say, wow, I learned so much from this course. So, so that's good. But uh, I like interpretive planning a lot. Um, I've done some long-range interpretive plans for organizations like the National Park Service, uh, but I do a, a, a two or two and a half day workshop that I simply call interpretive thinking. And it's all about meeting with a particular park staff. And I don't, it's not just for interpreters anymore. I, I try not to do it unless the superintendent and assistant superintendent, regional personnel, and maybe people above that can attend because the outcomes of this thing depend on everybody up and down the chain coming to agreement 
understanding what we're doing and where we're coming from and the outcomes of this training. And the training focuses on identifying the reason the park exists, what are the real essential experiences at this place, not just the standard things that you can do every other place, but what's really critical about this place that makes it unique, and then developing interpretation around that. And we found it to be be really thoughtful, makes people think of their park in a different way, and very productive. So that's a that's a fun workshop. Uh, it's a short workshop, uh, about about two and a half days, um, and it 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 it's it's really productive. Well, it sounds like a good program. Uh, I remember very well that Lisa was contacted when she was associate director uh, by Texas Parks and Wildlife wanting the interpretive host program developed. And they actually gave us a grant to help pay the additional administrative costs of putting that together. But part of the whole thing is for an organization to realize that having an interpretive mindset is kind of a whole park or whole organization uh, approach as opposed to thinking of a guide or an interpreter as the specialist who does it, but everybody else does something else. Right. Because so often people are talking to a maintenance worker or the park receptionist or the uh, somebody who answered the phone. And if, if they're getting a message that doesn't also embody the mission of the organization and kind of the the intent of goodwill of the organization interpretive training allows you to bring all that to everyone if you if you get to do it that's right kelly farrell and i were doing the workshop at lake catherine state park some years ago and like we like to have they had housekeepers there they had the front desk staff there and we're going through this this thing about what makes your park so unique what makes it so special and oh you know Gosh, our people are great. Yes, but that's not really where we're going. Oh, but we have nice cabins. Yeah, but that's not really where we're going. And so we're working this this out, uh, and we come to a really good statement. We finally get down to a statement that's about the resource and about about what makes this park so unique. Uh, and and the front desk person was so excited, and she said, "Oh my goodness." Now I understand. Now I realize what I need to tell our visitors when they ask what we can do here. You know, I, I just give them a list. They say, gosh, we got cabins, we got boats, you can swim, you can hike. I would give them that kind of. Now I know to tell them if they come here, be sure and hike this trail and go to this thing because this is the most important thing in this park. And there's a lot of other things to do too. And she was just elated about understanding the values and meaning and purpose of that park. It changed her whole approach. Uh, my very first trip to China, Qingchen Mountain National Park, uh, U.S.-China Environmental Fund, uh, Mark Brody had asked me to go there and do some training. And I asked the National Park staff at Qingchen Mountain, which is in Sichuan province, uh, what what's the park about? What's the most important thing about this park? They said, best park in China. Okay. They said yeah. best, best staff in in parks in China. Um, right. Yep. That's good. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. Yeah. And I never got past that with them at that moment. Uh, uh -huh. A couple days later, they took me on a hike that's up, uh, must have been a thousand steps up 
Chen Mountain to this uh, temple, uh, Taoist temple at the top. And they said, we want you to meet the Taoist master. He's kind of the leader of the Taoist uh, religion. And I went into a tea room and sat down with him. And he said, welcome to Chen Mountain, where man lives in perfect harmony with nature, the birthplace of Taoism. And I went, oh, my gosh. That's the theme that I wanted to hear from the, the park staff. Right. And uh, we went back and talked about it with park staff. But I was really aware that if if that kind of training hasn't occurred, there may be that pride in organization to say we're the best park or we're the best whatever. But when you get at that, what makes you unique? What's your central message? Sometimes uh, it's not as simple to elicit that from people who know the place as it as we want it to be. And that, that's right. It's surprising that it's not. But we see this a lot. Uh, people are busy with their daily life and they're, they've they've got Zoom meetings and and they've got budgets to do and, and they've got to lead this walk and, and everybody in the park has a job and they're busy doing that job and they don't stop and sit down and say, hey, let's talk about the park. Let's just think about what we're doing. And workshops like yours and mine do that for them and give them that retreat, that chance to step back and say, okay, now let's just talk about why this place exists? Why? What are its values? What What really is the essence of this place? And, and that's such valuable time. I learned so much from Lisa uh, in doing interpretive planning workshops for NAI, and uh, she has been the guiding light for me in all of this. I I think back to my own career starting in uh, 1972 with state parks in Illinois, and having none of that guidance and running mm -hmm. a visitor center and developing exhibits and making interpretive planning decisions without any real sense of structure about what I was doing or why I was doing. Exactly. Yes. And that's how most people are out there doing that uh, uh, today. Just, and sometimes they get lucky and sometimes they miss the boat. Well, and I think that's the magic of professional networks like NAI national association for interpretation is they bring people in touch with each other and people like you help them understand what they could be accomplishing. Well, I appreciate your taking time out of your schedule to chat with me on uh, our podcast. And I hope we get to see each other in person one of these days at something, but uh, I confess I'm on an Island in the middle of the ocean. So I don't, I don't know. <laughs> well, if, 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 if wishes were horses, I'd be on a on some kind of flight out there to say hello to you. Maybe we'll do that this next year. That'd be great. We'd love to see you. Well, thanks, Jay. Thank you, Tim. This has been fun. I've enjoyed it. Thanks, Jay, for joining me today on Reflections on Interpretation, Talking Story with Guides and Interpreters. Next week, I'll be talking with Bradley Block, an old friend and a an interpreter of many years for South Dakota State Parks, a National Park Service interpreter. It's and an administrator now in USDA Forest Service. Thanks again to Mark Stoffel for use of his beautiful mandolin music. This time it's Buckminster Wolves from his Coffee and Cake album. Have a wonderful week. Aloha.